Hello, and welcome to Pod Sequentialism. I'm your host, Matt Kennedy. Uh, Pod Sequentialism is, of course, an outgrowth of the Pop Sequentialism exhibition, catalog, and traveling art show of contemporary important comic book art, and also of Meltdown Comics and Collectibles, where we uh, are recording pretty much weekly here, and La Luz de Jesus Gallery, where I'm the gallery director inside the Soap Plant Wacko Superstore, and of course also my new endeavor, Gallery 30 South, out in Pasadena. That last thing, of course, feeds into this week's guest, as does actually La Luz de Jesus and the uh, comic book exhibition Outgrowth, and that is in bringing back to the program Mr. Tom Neely. Hello. And Tom has a show up right now at Gallery 30 South that we just put on the walls a couple days ago. It is a what we're calling a graphic novel on walls in that the entire presentation is shown sequentially. And the only place you can see it is actually on the walls in the gallery because it is a not published book. And we're going to get into that. But um, if Tom sounds familiar to you, he may sound from. He may sound familiar to you because you know his work in The Humans and in Popeye and in the latest Guar comics and his Henry and Glenn Forever and, and Henry and Glenn Forever and Ever comics and his Ignatz award-winning Inkblot and The Wolf and many projects that he's done, many of which relate back to music in some way or another. And I think that's where we're going to start. So we've, we've had you on before and we've talked extensively about your, your love of, of heavy metal and punk rock and and you know how the Henry and Glenn thing came together as kind of like this this joke that grew out of this this great love for Black Flag and the Misfits, right. and how it seemed like there was an inherent lack of humor amongst one of the people in those bands, <laughs> and that it, it would be funny to do this absurdist treatment of these iconic macho men where they are indeed lovers. And the interesting thing, of course, is that while that became a really big cultural phenomenon in and of its own right, and you've done toys and stuff now, which just came out, mm-hmm. uh, that it's also helped you, I think, to some extent, hit the radar again in doing concert poster design and doing a lot of music-related artwork. And we talked about the fact that just, was it a couple weeks ago, that there was the festival in Las Vegas? Yeah, Psycho Festival. Psycho Festival. And so that was a, a large gathering of bands that, there was definitely a, a certain focus on Doom and Stoner, but there was also bands like King Diamond headlining and people like Brian Jonestown Massacre and that type of stuff. You said Black Rebel Motorcycle Club played too? No, um, I don't know. It was all uh, Murder City Devils. Murder City Devils. Uh, Swans, Melvin's Sleep, yeah. Magma. Everybody was there. Wow, wow. <laughs> it was all over the place. And Pentagram. Yeah. And so how did that gig uh, come your way? Um, uh, kind of, well, through, uh, my friend Ryan Avery, who, um, kind of funny story. He, he's a local promoter, does a midnight collective. He promotes a lot of metal and punk shows around Long Beach and sometimes LA and stuff. About th- three, four years ago, he hired me to do a poster for a wolf serpent show that somehow the, I think, I can't remember if the show fell through or the printing fell through, but the poster never happened. Right. Um, which is actually and, a lot more common, I think, than yeah. people realize. So I did the artwork, but it, it, the uh, something went wrong and never happened. And then uh, I don't know. Years later, like just like six months ago, I was at a at a show at the complex, which is now defunct. But uh, mm-hmm. and I ran into Ryan again, and uh, he's like, "Oh, hey, I'm gonna hit you up soon." And then he just like called me the next day. He was like, "I'm art directing Psycho this year. Do you want to do all the artwork?" I was like, "Sure." <laughs> so, That's amazing. But That's yeah, amazing. but like yeah, like you're saying, like the Henry England thing has been a weird backdoor into the music world for me. Like almost every time I meet a band or a musician, 
and someone mentions that I did that book, they're familiar with it. And so it has uh, opened a lot of weird doors for me, like even like becoming friends with Rob Halford. I'm working on a possible project with him, mm-hmm. working with Guar, uh, and yeah, Psycho, all, all, all kinds of stuff. But I've always been interested in working in music, so it's kind of been perfect that and, it's worked out that way. And of course, a lot of the big influence on what has come to be known as lowbrow and kind of transitioned a bit into, you know, pop surrealism has been this connection back to the sign painters and concert poster artists of the San Francisco area. So whether you're talking about Neon Park, who was actually the first sign painter guy mm-hmm. to come onto the radar for Bill Graham and, and doing those those amazing psychedelic posters, it was Neon and then people like Rick Griffin and, mm-hmm. you know, S. Clay Wilson and... and, and Stanley Mouse doing all these posters, yeah. Robert Crumb. A lot of those guys were doing underground comics too. So yeah, yeah, so. yeah. and I think that in in some cases, you know, with Neon, that actually predates the the underground comics. When um, when Robert Crumb moves from Cleveland out to uh, California, mm-hmm. then that kind of changed the game a little bit. And you had somebody who who is extremely well known for his underground comic work, who's also doing album art for you know Big Brother and the Holding Company, mm-hmm. and and very high profile bands but that comes full circle because you've done Green Day posters you've done the Melvins Mm -hmm. I mean you know I was just listening to American Idiot for the first time in a long time the other day and I I was amazed how it's it's pretty flawless from start to finish and I remember when it came out I was sort of hoping that because Smile had finally gotten released that maybe this was the year that Brian Wilson was going to win a Grammy (laughs) and out comes American Idiot and sweeps the Grammys oh yeah (laughs) but that you know that it's still a culturally it's, it's maybe even more prescient now than it was when it came out yeah and especially i mean american idiot you know it's it's it really describes a lot of the uh the the politics in the world right now and the green day thing again was too they just like mike durant just called me up because he was a fan of henry glenn comics and he was originally talking to me about maybe doing green day comics and then he was like oh wait we need a record cover like next week can you do it i was like yeah "Yeah, of course (laughs) yeah i'll do whatever that's amazing And of course, you know, they, and Dookie was an illustrated cover. Yeah, yeah. So they have kind and of. I made a reference to that in my cover too. There's like the Dookie bombs are in the background of my my cover that I did for them. So it ties together. So. That's cool. So the what we're gonna really, I think, focus on a lot of talking about, of course, is the 10th anniversary of the Blot. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was your your first major graphic novel work. Mm-hmm. You won an Ignatz for it. So it's like you hit you you step up to the plate and you knock it out of the park at your first at bat. And and then it becomes more difficult because you're an independent illustrator and that work is so much steeped in a sort of bygone era and a classic way of telling stories mm-hmm. where your influences are much closer to, you know, Pete Seeger or... Um, you know, some of the classic 1930s and 40s illustrators that was really not, I mean, and I can fan, the Fantagraphics crowd clearly loves that stuff, mm-hmm. but that doesn't necessarily open doors to you to become a professional comic book artist unless you keep publishing your own work because right. that's the model in the independent world. It's not like Marvel or DC would see this, this comic, which is so referential to Popeye and, um, you know, what were some of the other, the people that were... On the blot? Yeah. Um, it was uh, definitely influenced by E.C. Cigar, uh, Popeye, and Floyd Godforson's Mickey Mouse. Right. Uh, at least stylistically, because I kind of wanted to create more or less like a silent movie in sort of a 30s comic strip style. 
Right. But it was also heavily influenced by my fine arts background and in painting and stuff. And so like Rene Magritte and surrealism and Man Ray and the ideas of like uh, Dadaism and all that stuff really came into play to like shape the story and make it more of this like surrealistic, uh, uh, all completely silent. Well, there's one character that speaks. Which also adds to this reality. She only has, there's only one character that has a voice. The rest of it's completely silent. Mm. Um, but yeah, just a lot of uh, bringing a lot of my influences from art school and my love of comics all into one place for uh, making that first book. And uh, yeah, I published yeah. it, in, and then I self-published it in 2007, mm-hmm. and yeah, won the Ignatz Award for that. But that was kind of like the beginning of launching my career. Even though I'd been doing comics for about. I mean, I'd been self-publishing many comics, and even Henry and Glenn before that. Uh, Henry and Glenn, I think, started in 2005 mm-hmm. or 2004. Um, but, yeah, that was the first major work that kind of put, started my career in comics. And what's interesting, of course, is that later you end up actually working on Popeye. Mm-hmm. So well, that kind of line. came around the back door, too, because I did, a, I did my own... Uh, bootleg Popeye comic strip where he kind of has an existential nightmare and beats himself up for like 20 pages and uh, I've seen that that artwork it's pretty great so it was called a uh, doppelganger mm-hmm. and um, that, I think I self-published that in like 2008 or something and mm-hmm. and uh, the editors of the current Popeye they were doing a series written by Roger Landridge mm-hmm. and uh he suggest, I think Roger actually suggested me as an artist when they needed somebody to fill in. So I did a couple of issues of that series. It was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. One full issue, issue number three, where it's a, and it was perfect because it's a boxing issue where Wimpy is like being trained to be a boxer. Mm-hmm. So it was a lot of fun to draw that. Well, let me ask you this too, because this is going to be a factor in what what the main topic is. Mm-hmm. Of when you're working on a character like Popeye, and Popeye is he's got to be public domain at this point. Uh, it's sort of not really. King Features still owns th- uh, rights to it, but there's some of the animation has fallen into public domain. Interesting. It's a weird. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's in a weird wormhole. <laughs> so, because the first Popeye comics got to be like what forty one. No, it was earlier than that. Earlier, so the thirties. Yeah. yeah. Maybe even the twenties. I can't remember exactly, but yeah, no thirties. And he was a backup character in Thimble Theater, which was a whole other set of characters, <clears throat> but um. Yeah, and he just came along, came along. I think it was like maybe 37, 38. I can't so remember exactly. When we look in, so these exceptions that are being granted to the copyright length of 70 years are um, are kind of interesting, right? So like the, the it's like if you are a family and someone, your dad or your granddad created something and you try and file to get the copyright renewed on something, it's extremely difficult when you start hitting that 70-year um, time frame, and yet clearly Walt Disney and Mickey Mouse and uh, King Features and and the one golden example that I think is a good example is Peter Pan. Uh, the all proceeds from the licensing of Peter Pan go directly into the H.M. Barry Foundation hmm. that um, gives money to what we would now call at-risk youth, but was an orphanage, you know, in its day. Hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah, and and so that's that's one thing that of course has been around for over a hundred years at this point. Yeah. And the the fact that that has been maintained is, but that's also British copyright, which is a little bit different than American copyright. Mm-hmm. So I wonder how it's possible that these big companies are able to get beyond that seventy year um, 
thing. Yeah, I'm not sure. I know Disney has gone to battle for that over the years, like suing to extend that that yeah. copyright rule so they can hold on to Mickey Mouse. But but yeah, I'm not sure. So why why we we got into that is of course that uh, your current show is called Birds of Death, mm-hmm. and it is a graphic novel on walls of sorts. Uh, we say graphic novel, but of course it was it's not complete. No. So there are 14 pages, mm-hmm. uh, one of which is a double-page splash, mm-hmm. that was produced in adapting a book by a relatively famous musician. And in the course of adapting this, and obviously 14 pages in, you came to the realization that the person who had contacted you about this did not have the rights to do this. Yeah, well, it's... Um it's a complicated story, but yeah. Uh, and we'll be conscious of the legalese. Yeah, not to get into too many of the messy details, but like the basically, I was I was uh, working with uh, I was collaborating with a writer who uh, supposedly had the rights to develop uh, Nick Cave's first novel and the I Saw the Angel as a, a movie and. And because you you are kind of getting this reputation right. as the go to so guy, they, they approached me as as. Uh, someone to illustrate a graphic novel that would then maybe translate to become a movie eventually right uh was my collaborator's plan um but so i worked on it and we basically i completed the first prologue chapter of the book that's like an introduction to the world that we live in for this novel and uh and right around the time i finished that i started i realized that the rights had never been secured and things kind of fell apart between me and the, my collaborator. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the book is not going to happen sadly, but, um, uh, but I mean, luckily you, you saw the work and you, you appreciated it. And I was, I was really happy that you wanted to have a show of it because I do think it's some of my, I don't know, I put a lot of work into this. It's fully painted pages and I was mm-hmm. developing a new style I often like to develop a new style for every book I work on, mm-hmm. and so a lot of the last year was spent developing this, the look of this book, and um, I think the 14 pages that I made are really beautiful and, and some of my best work to date, so I would agree. I'm happy it has a has a show if it's not going to become a book. But uh, Right, right, I, and I agree that I think, and it's hard to say, you know, this is my best work because you have so many different types of work, and mm-hmm. because you do have... <laughs> it's hard to say my best work about myself anyway, but... Yeah, yeah, but, there's that thing too, and, and especially, you know, psychologically the idea... But I'm really like proud put, of it is what I mean, yeah. Right, right, but to, and to put that much work into something that doesn't get to go into mass market mm-hmm. when, when you've clearly dedicated a lot of time and thought to it but what's kind of amazing about it is that there's really only a handful of pages that actually have text on them mm-hmm. so while they um, and some are sequential but a lot are, co- are splash or semi-splash mm-hmm. um, that when you have and the, and the main characters in this prologue are crows or Corby, Corby's yeah the, the introduction the prologue well the book itself is narrated by several different it's a very confusing book if you have if people haven't read it it's almost like uh, I'd compare it to like if, uh, naked Lunch or something. Yeah, if Naked Lunch, like a Naked Lunch rearrangement of a William Faulkner novel, kind of. Right. You know, so it's uh, it's very disjointed and strange. So we're like part of what the collaborator and I were trying to do is like how to piece together uh, a more uh, cohesive narrative. cohesive narrative that went straight through as a storyline. Yeah. And one of the narrators of the book are the crows. Who are these kind of like omniscient seers of everything that's happening in this in the in this town? Mm-hmm. And then uh, one of the narrators is the main character Euclid, who is a 
who's the main protagonist and he's he's in my chat the prologue chapter is he's also narrating part of it as he's dying in a pool of mud after having been beaten up by uh i forget who but yeah (laughs) it's been a while since i read the whole book straight through i've been like reading so many pieces of it while working on the prologue but (laughs) right and especially when when adapting a a novel into the sequential format there's a lot of decisions that have to be made not just about where you make your cut you know like what you include and what you don't Mm -hmm. but how to just like with any story how you go about sequencing the action Right. In a way that benefits the story. Mm-hmm. So well, that's when, my one of my favorite parts of the of the job of making comics. It's like, and especially the the people that I've chosen to work with have been, you know, the writer of the humans to Keenan Marshall Keller is great, uh, and even working with the uh, Matt Miner on Guar, like working with writers that allow me to be kind of like the director of the film. They don't like tell me like panel one this happens, panel two this happens, panel three. They just like say here's what happens on a page, mm. and you figure it out. And then so I get to like figure out the sequence myself and that's where like I make the edits and the cuts and the, the direction and that's my, my favorite part is like piecing that together and and it's good that you like that there are some mm-hmm. some artists that don't you know there are some no. artists that want absolutely tell me what's in this panel tell yeah. me what's in this panel and there's some writers that want to do that so yeah. that, that's yeah but yeah, I've been lucky to find the right collaborations especially with Keenan he's been like one of my favorite uh, partners to work with and we're uh he just gave me some new scripts for for the next miniseries of the Humans comics, so mm. we're going to start working on that soon too in the future. But cool. Well, we're going to take a quick little break to hear from one of our sponsors. Want to remind our listeners, of course, that uh, you can contact us at info at popsequentialism dot com to send emails and comments about the shows. I've actually been getting a lot of feedback uh, in person at La Luz de Jesus Gallery and at uh, Gallery Thirty South, and also I've I've gotten some messages on Facebook with people that have been really happy with the stuff that we've been talking about lately. And in a way, it's interesting to get back into talking a little bit more about comics that we've been talking about social issues and that people have been appreciative of it and that they've been appreciative that I've been willing to talk about in an open environment some of the things that that are deemed controversial. And there's been a lot of maybe squashing of validity of opinion uh, a lot, not just online, but I think in general and, and especially on college campuses where you'd think that it's good to get the conversation going. But um, I say that because I, I do welcome, as as we do in the podcast, we welcome advertisers and there's a lot of variance in our demographic. There's a lot of people with a lot of different ideas about things and the fact that we treat everybody fairly respectfully and don't want to come down too hard with a an opinion that isn't very grounded in either fact, circumstance, or a recent history is, um, I think, beneficial. And it's, I, I hope that people realize that we try and walk that line a little bit without getting too far abreast of what I think the pulse of the nation is at. And when I'm discussing issues, especially issues about politics or about pop culture as they relate to politics, that it's a way to open up a discussion that everybody can benefit from rather than um, turn into a screaming match or to have the loudest voice in the room. And so we do welcome your feedback. I want more of it. I, I enjoy it. I like negative feedback because I think if you only get positive feedback, you run the risk of living life in a bubble and that's no fun. And, uh, 
As I say, we'll be back in 60 seconds after a word from one of our sponsors. Hello and welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. I'm your host, Matt Kennedy. I am sitting here, of course, with Mr. Tom Neely. As we discussed, he is working on the Guar comic miniseries right now. And is just come off of an amazing run with this music festival out in Las Vegas where all of all the artwork produced was Tom Neely artwork. He's back working on another Humans series, which will be coming out next year. The Humans, of course, is a comic book published by Image that is a world not unlike the Planet of the Apes, where the um, everybody is an ape-like person, and the name of the biker gang in your book is the Humans. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's an ape planet, and it's a biker gang called the Humans. Mm-hmm. Uh, as if there was a biker gang here called the Gorillas, I guess. But, right, um, right. Uh, but yeah, it was it was a uh, Keenan Marshall Keller, the writer, uh, came to me with the idea like, um, geez, almost four years ago now, and uh, he just said apes on motorcycles. I was like, that's all I want to draw. So <laughs> yep, let's do it. And so yeah, we did a ten issue, actually eleven issues if we include the self published issue zero mm-hmm. uh, mini series that Image published. Um, the second volume came out last year. There's two volumes now collecting the whole series uh, that you can get through Image. But we're starting up the omnibus. third volume. Omnibus. Yeah, we wanted to do an omnibus uh, eventually. We're trying to figure out the timing for when that should happen, maybe just before the next series starts. Mm-hmm. So the next series is going to be called The Jungle, and it follows some of the characters to prison. So it becomes an apes in prison comic. Wow. Um, so, yeah, it goes from bike, biker exploitation to prison exploitation. <laughs> to, wow. But, yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. You can get really crazy with that. I mean, aside, there's so many gangs in prison, mm-hmm. you know, that it's, be careful. That's yeah. all I'll say. Be careful with that. <laughs> but the, uh, another fascinating thing, too, you know, we, we talked about working on projects that uh, have existed in, in the zeitgeist before, and we we're talking about adapting a project that is a difficult-to-adapt project. And a lot of the stuff that you've done and your personal projects and, and individual publications that you self-published that revolve around music can get very interesting because you come at it from a point of view of a fan of extreme metal and you know Norwegian black metal and stuff like that. And there's that balance of being able to say, hey, I appreciate this music and I completely have nothing in common with this ideology that that some of it promotes how do you walk that balance in when you when you're working in comics that have those two lives to them uh huh well i don't i mean i don't listen to any of the nsbm stuff the, right. like the nazi bands I, I avoid all that stuff but um i don't know I, I like all music in general it's not just black metal and stuff but i mean i'm a big jazz head and country music nerd too but uh but um I don't know. I, think, I mean, I kind of approach it. I mean, the way I approach the comics is like I have I have a lot of uh, respect and reverence for the music world. My brother's a, a brilliant musician, so I kind of grew up around music all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I'm also I'm a punk rocker at heart, so like I I want to fuck with him and like make fun of him. So like sure. So I, I have an irreverence that I can make something like Henry England that's like the Mad Magazine of of like the punk world right now. And in a in a sense, is the kind of the way I approach it. Right. And uh, I love them, you know, with love them with a lot of respect, but I want to make fun of them. And I mean, and, and that's uh, what punk magazine was. I yeah. Mean, you know, there was punk comics. Yeah. You know, and you had Kaz and you had, you know, Jay and those guys working mm-hmm. on on 
skewering the the punk rockers of the day and the punk rockers of the day loved it mm-hmm. you know i remember talking to um to i think it was clem burke but um someone in blondie about you know them being drawn into punk comics right and them thinking it was the coolest thing in the world and that debbie showed one of the comics to mm-hmm. johnny ramone and johnny ramone got super pissed off because the ramones were, were kind of drawn in a bad light yeah. well, well blondie was drawn in a good light and you know <laughs> but johnny was such you know this kind of right-wing guy and, and in a way he was very similar to to glenn danzig in that they were both kind of like that fast fast tempo four bar rock and roll stuff with really silly lyrics about B-movies and things like that. And, of mm-hmm. course, Johnny hardly wrote any of the songs. It was mainly D.D. But that, uh, for Johnny, it was kind of like, well, someone must be making money off of this, and I don't think I'm the guy making money off of this, so I have a problem with it type of thing. But main, many of them, including you know people, in, you know, the guys in the Sex Pistols, were big fans of comic books and loved the idea of it, and, and but still had that kind of snotty, punk rock attitude of like nothing is sacred right. and I think that 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 end of it is completely left punk rock that now everything is sacred yeah, and like nobody has a point of view a point of view about it <laughs> yeah. or I should say a um a, a realistic detachment from it that mm-hmm. everybody feels like you know that it's all or nothing all the time and I think that the beautiful thing about the you know the screams of anarchy in that first wave of British punk rock was that Anarchy was actually happening at the time. It wasn't that it w- that it was this push of like we need to revolt. I mean, they were talking about people were revolting in Northern Ireland and in mm-hmm. Scotland and during Thatcher area, a uh, Thatcher era, um, Great Britain that there were big problems and those problems were causing rioting. And what's interesting is that that's happening right now in the U.S. Mm-hmm. That there's constantly a a big push of rioting, but it doesn't seem to be the same type of establishment war that it was in the 70s that now it seems like that a a very small portion of the population elected a president this is not you know this is factual Mm -hmm. less than 25 percent of the population elected the president this time around um and and to a, a bigger degree of course because he did not win the popular vote and lost it by three million votes that you can say that even less you know, elected this president that more, at least more than 25% voted for the competition. Mm-hmm. So not only did um, less than a quarter of the people elect him, but they were a minority of the votes cast. And so there's this kind of special interest kind of thing that um, seems to be in the zeitgeist now where where you have a guy who is is saying that the news is fake and that anything that doesn't favor what he says can't be true and he's cast aspersions upon journalists and he's even encouraged people to violence and that we haven't seen anything like this you know on a national level maybe even ever i mean we in the nixon years it wasn't like this it was mm-hmm. different there were we had a war and there were people that were against it now it's less easy to kind of navigate and to see like you know what uh, how to walk through this and figure out that there's this side and this other side and a lot of other sides in the in in between that have co-opted one side or the other with specific ideas and so it'll be interesting to see how the comics reflect that because they haven't yet the comics really haven't reflected this at all yet and it could be that it's granted the publishing numbers are down the circulation is down so even something like you know punk comics probably had a circulation of somewhere around 40 or 60,000 
you know, which would have been very small <clears throat> today, but it would be huge now. So that, you know, we're not seeing it reflected really in the mainstream comics. Not that you would expect that, but we're not really seeing it even in the fantagraphic titles. We're not seeing it in in the self-published. I think you will. I think much. everybody's still just starting to <clears throat> starting to absorb it. You know, it I takes a lot to make comics, but <laughs> probably a ton of zines. It takes a long time to make comics, so you know, yeah. some people could be finishing something now. But I mean, there. I, for one, my cover of Guar number three, the variant cover, I have. Uh, you know, I don't. I don't get into talking about politics much, but I put it in my art, and Slyminsta Hyman is uh, riding Gorgor the dinosaur with uh, both Trump and Steve Bannon and Richard Spencer's heads impaled on her lance. So I drew, I drew that actually the week before the election, before voting day last year. So I drew, drew it back in November. Wow, and that's and just then, reading now. And then the issue just came out this week. So. Wow. <laughs> you know, and it's funny because we talked about this, that, that Guar, I mean... It's not political because Guar would tackle whoever was yeah they kill everybody yeah. you know so it's it, even that is less political than it sounds right and um, of course the depiction of, of violence against the president is capital crime but um, <laughs> we'll see if they come pound on my door <laughs> in a science fiction context you know it's hard, it's hard to prove but the they and you know they they the Trump campaign bought um, advertising on our network and we all became yeah. incensed by it and I was like I, I don't, I'm not going to accept that Yeah, you know that we're not taking their money you can give it back um, and we moved our mm-hmm. <laughs> we changed carriers you know of the podcast but um, it's it's interesting I think that there are quite a few people who I think would really love to get political and do so in print that I think would get a tremendous amount of backlash and it would be harmful for their ability to tell stories ongoing and so they don't and I think there are a lot of people who aren't of the quality level of those people who maybe will publish stuff Mm -hmm. and they might get a little bit of fame but I think what's funny is that where where we are now and I think this was sort of a a talking point for the past 20 years is that it's it's memes it's what has gone from what used to be satire has now become boiled down to really simple things you know we used to say Mm -hmm. you know you're not even a movie of the week you're a t-shirt that's the line that was written into seven unfortunately that translates into the art and comics world too and they're like majority of like the younger generation absorbs their culture through memes and through instagram and through probably tumblr's and out of funk bound but i don't know you know whatever it is but they're not actually going out and consuming or buying the product they're just like sharing a free thing yeah i mean like i i post on Instagram constantly to help self-promote my comics, but, you know, I think probably 10% of the people that follow me actually ever <laughs> go out and actually buy my comics. Right, right. Because that's the reality, and that's what the whole comics industry is kind of tanking right now because of that, because I think people are absorbing culture through their fast, quick hit through their phone instead of actually going out and engaging in things, so I don't know, it's a weird it's a weird time for comics. Even, like, Marvel and DC are, like, lo- losing numbers in rapidly. It's, uh, I think that there's there's a, a kind of there's a nine hundred pound gorilla in the room with this. It's diamond. Well, yeah, there's certainly that. I mean, I will always say diamond is the problem. Less less choice is bad. Always, right? We know that that less choice is bad. But I think that 
that's one aspect of it. The other aspect is that comics have never adapted to wanting to find more readers. No, I think, again, that's overlooking the big problem is that the direct market through Diamond is killing the industry. I mean, I'll tell you from personal experience, Henry England Forever was originally rejected by Diamond Distribution, the biggest distribution. People don't know. They have a monopoly on all distribution of comics directly to comic stores, and they don't distribute them outside of comic stores. So... Henry and Glenn Forever originally was rejected by Diamond because it was too weird of a book for them. Mm-hmm. And then when they heard in an interview that it from with my publisher that it had sold over 100,000 copies without them, mm-hmm. then they picked it up. But where did those books go? They weren't in comic shops. Yeah. 100,000 copies sold in indie bookstores, record stores, zine stores, music stores, everywhere else except comic shops. Yeah. And that book became a cult hit. If it had just gone through the direct market like the humans did, mm-hmm. the numbers just keep going down because... We had countless people telling, coming up to us as fans of the humans saying, we don't know where to find your comics. I want to read the humans. And I was like, well, they're in comic shops. They're like, I don't have a comic shop. I don't go to comic shops. Yeah. I run into that all the time. And that's the problem with the direct market is you can, books can die because they, they won't reach their audience because they're only going to the hardcore comic book audience. And a weird book like, I mean, Guar's doing well, but like, I worried that Guar would like suffer from being stuck in that distribution model but what about did did Henry Glenn hit the New York Times bestseller list no because it's not getting into the system that that counts that right yeah those those systems are all convoluted anyway it's like all you know all right, back, recently, back door marketing tricks is what those yeah there's anyway. was just a very big report about a yeah. young a young adult fiction book where they um, they manipulated mm-hmm. a title into the top five and the way that this had happened is this woman who had worked as a publicist published her own book and um, had figured out a really crafty way of getting bulk purchases at a handful of the stores that count towards the New York Times bestseller list, which is really yeah. Barnes & Noble and maybe Amazon. Yeah. So if you're buying back your own product and then you cancel the order, all they see is that the order came through not that it was canceled. So mm-hmm. she was able to manipulate her way onto the number one position, knocking off a beloved author with like 27 books yeah. from the number one position. And so someone, somebody got interested in this and pursued it and realized that's what had happened. Yeah. And so the New York Times actually issued a report that they were revoking the status they had given this book in previous weeks, <laughs> you know, excising it basically from the record. Wow. And and that's interesting. And I think people hear that and be like, well, I want to do that. I want to manipulate my book to the top 10. <laughs> it's it's something that you could do if you wanted to pursue it. It would involve getting it into um, Barnes & Noble, and it would involve um, yeah, having it listed it, on Amazon and, and having almost, a lot of sales listed. Yeah, yeah. But and you'll it, get caught. It has to do with a lot of like pre-planning and marketing early schemes. I don't know. I'm not sure how it works. But I've mostly worked with like smaller indie publishers that don't play those games anyway. So, But what's important and why I, why I bring it up mm-hmm is that here you've got a book that sold over 100,000 copies and did not hit in any division skew on the New York Times bestseller list yeah. while it while it was outselling every book in that queue. Yeah. It would have been the top of humor, it would have been the top of um uh, illustrated fiction it would have been the top of um, music I mean you've got a lot of categories that that book would fit into yep. and it would have topped them all and the fact that it's not monitoring sales in a realistic way is 
a big that may be the bigger gorilla in the room. You know that yeah. it's if if you're not getting recognized for a certain amount of success, it limits that next level of success. Mm-hmm. You know, people like to like to point to independent films and say, "Well, look at a film like My Big Fat Greek Wedding. It did killer business in niche markets, mm-hmm. mainly markets where there were large Greek portion American populations." And it grew out of those. You know, it had a guy that had been on Sex in the City, but he wasn't like a huge star. And it was um, produced by um, Playtone Films, which mm-hmm. is uh, Tom Tom Hanks's company. So it was a leg up, but it exploded on its own. It, it, it had the ability, because of tracking, because of movie track, and people looking at numbers, because it was doing well, it had the ability to do better because there was a system to pay attention to that early success. For many independent creators like yourself and others, even if you have early success, that early success is such a outside-the-system success mm-hmm. that it doesn't necessarily lead to the next level of success because the system doesn't allow it. It's sort of like you know documentaries. There were such a stringent rules put on documentaries for years where you had to, it had to play for two weeks in New York or L.A. Mm-hmm. in a theater for... Um, it, and it got both more specific and less specific because a lot of great documentaries were not qualifying right. for best documentary feature. And I think when there's a big push from outside for people to correct it, that corrections do happen, but they're slow. You know, much like politics and social uh, mm-hmm. social justice issues. But that, do you think there is a way for independence to be able to, you know, and and have a realistic way? for independent sales numbers to be relatable so that authors of works like yours who have done incredibly well and at this point it's got to be 150,000, 160,000 I'm not sure but it's but, high yeah well, I mean I'm not sure with the, the new hardback edition that just came out too that collects all of it is is the new one that's out but the original book the small green one that was six dollars uh, it's uh, yeah it's been over 120 or so I'm not sure yeah, yeah. it's up there so do you think that there's there's a realistic way to to, to change the system? That, no, that, is I don't think so. Is there any pressure that could be put on? I mean, for me, I've been doing it long enough that I, I've stopped wanting to change the system or fight it. Just like I think instead I find freedom in that, that I can, you know, if I can do whatever I want in comics. Right. And it doesn't matter because there's not that much pressure. There's not that much weight <laughs> weighing on it. I can be whatever artist I want to do and whatever project I want to do. Yeah. And I can make, I've figured out how to make it successful enough to keep myself going. So that's what I focus on is just like, I want to, what do I want to do? Like, I'm not interested in getting to draw Spider-Man or, right. or to sell a big pitch to, you know, that's going to, you know, I'm not interested in that. I just want to do the stories that I want to do. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, like I, I wouldn't have dreamed of working with Guar, but they called me up and I was like, "Yeah, I've got a free month. I'll draw Guar for a month. This sounds like fun." Uh, it's not something I would have necessarily pursued, but it happened, and it's been awesome. But like most of my personal projects have all been approached with the angle of just like, "What do I? What story do I want to tell?" I don't even think about the market or where it's going to go or how it's going to sell. It's just you know, Henry and Glenn was a total fluke. It literally fell out of a beer bottle of an idea from mm-hmm. between me and three friends, and it just took off and for a while I did fight that I was like why is this dumb book I've done been the biggest thing I've ever while yeah. I'm I working like on this, these like serious stuff. yeah you know I was working on my book The Wolf at the time and I was like this is my serious art book and then like I've got this dumb joke that's like taking off and yeah. crazy but then I learned that 
you know, that's, I mean, that was a blessing. It was great that it took off and it's, but it's allowed me and it's opened my door, the doors for me to like do any kind of comics I want. And but I, I can see the worry, you know, that you don't want to, you don't want to become Gallagher, you know, where it's like, okay, I broke a watermelon once. Now I have to break a watermelon for the rest of my life. Right. Yeah. Now, but I, yeah, that's why I always jump around and do different projects all the time, yeah. you know, and that's created a disjointed f- fan base, like my humans fans and my Henry Glenn fans and my blot fans are all very different groups of people, but hmm. it, uh, some of it crosses over, but it, I don't know. It's been interesting to do that and jump around. And even like you know the the uh, Birds of Death, the uh, Nick Cave book would have been a totally different audience because, yeah. and it's a totally different style. Yeah, that wouldn't necessarily translate for humans fans. You know? And it is. It's it's still very illustrated, and it's mm-hmm. very much of the sequential world. But there is a much more fine art aspect to it. I mean, just inherently in the mm-hmm. way that you've pieced it together, and because it's got such sort of great source inspiration we will call it source material because like i say there's not a lot of text on these pages mm-hmm. so they do function in their own their own environment in their own world and it's your vision of something which then automatically makes it different than, than right. it being an adaptation there and would so, have been text on these pages but but it, was, it wasn't on the original art it was removed right, so, right, so right. the art is just mine but um so this so this project as it exists is much more of an inspired project than an adaptation right and but it still has that great connection to someone like Nick Cave, who was seen as a fine artist, who was a, mu- a musician, mm-hmm. who was seen as kind of a guru to some, you know, that um, he's had a very interesting life and he's had recent tragedies and there's been a great documentary mm-hmm. detailing his comeback from that tragedy. And the band is now on tour. And, you know, every Nick Cave album is an event, so any Nick Cave project is an event. Yeah. And while this is tangential and not a direct connection and not authorized, we have something which is in and of itself taken on this life of its own. And when we talk about appropriation as fine art, this is a very different example of that. And right. yet it still can live because of the rules set up by appropriation that, yeah. that it has its, its, own, its own right to exist. And um, before we kind of close out this podcast, I wanted to ask you one thing, and it's a little bit off, off of what we were talking about, but it feeds into your ability to continue doing what you want. And it's, what do you think the future is? And, you know, we've talked about um, kind of the, the depressed circulation numbers and that, you, you know, you haven't worried about the, um, you know, that kind of, the dangers that come with the breakthrough of a mainstream title right. that you've still been able to do what you want to do. Do you think that that continues to be impacted as the situation stays the same with Diamond and, and, and these other things? So you obviously have to find a second revenue source within this this one thing. And right. I, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a lot of hand motions and I realize that I have to articulate this for our listeners. So when we're talking about revenue streams it's not necessarily that it's merchandising it's that just like any industry there are certain things you have to do that you're expected to do in order to reach further demographics you have to do a certain amount of marketing so that involves going to conventions and we talked about this last time you were here Mm -hmm. that that the conventions that you have to do are changing Mm -hmm. and certainly this last san diego comic-con saw a huge drop off in regular vendors Mm -hmm. we saw mile high not do the show for the first time ever. Yeah. We saw a lot of other independent artists realize that what it now costs for a booth and a hotel room mm-hmm. and travel and anxiety and preparation that Comic-Con is really not being worth it anymore. And I know well, there's a shift towards things like Decon. It, people say it's not worth it, but it changes all the time. I've been doing Comic-Con since 98. 
And the first time I went there, I drove down Saturday morning. San Diego Comic-Con. Yeah, San Diego Comic-Con. The first time I did it was in 98, and I literally drove down Saturday morning, bought a ticket at the door, walked around, bought a bunch of Transformers and comics, and drove home that night. What a different world it was. It was, like, totally different. But then I I exhibited there from 2000 to 2010 with uh, small press booths and then, like, graduated to larger booths that I shared with different publishers, Sparkplug Comic Books being one that I worked with for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, but then 2010, we st- the prices for the booths were getting so high that we decided to stop. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, but since then, it's it's always changing, and it's I've, it's, I've learned to enjoy it a lot more. I've, I've done uh, Artist Alley a couple of years, and the year that the humans first debuted, that was really good for us to be in Artist Alley and sold a lot of stuff. But the last couple of years, it seems to be like dropping off sales-wise. And to me, San Diego has become more of a, it's not a show that you go there to like sell and make, make money. It's a show to go there and get work for the next year. It's where I network, where I meet people, where I there is that. catch up with publishers. And that's what it's become to me. And it's just like, you know, the amount it costs to go there is just my investment in next year's work. So so it is like <clears throat> buying a full page in, you know, the LA guide for, you know, production houses. <laughs> it's like... Yeah buying a full page ad in variety it's like advertising yeah. in publishers weekly so it's also super fun though because there's like so well, much yeah. crazy shit going on down there it's great but yeah uh, but i mean this all but it's, there's it's a, always evolved like i remember in like 2009 just like fighting you know just fighting to sell enough to make enough to pay for my booth just yeah. like how can i sell you know five thousand dollars worth of my own books to afford to be here for a week right and then when i gave up on that notion and just became like this is a, a networking show it's a fun show it's where I get my freelance work for the year. And that's, you know, leading back to your question about revenue is like, that's part of why I'm able to do the books I do is because I do so much freelance work outside of that, mm-hmm. especially like working on album covers and with bands and stuff like that. But uh, all kinds of stuff, whatever I can do to earn enough money so that I don't have to worry about making money on my comics. Because when you start worrying about making money from your art, you start uh, sacrificing part of the art. You start questioning it and thinking about like, oh, what does the audience want? And I don't want to think that. I want to think, what do I want? Right. So, you know, and that's why, but then like sometimes uh, the two converge and like the humans was successful, Henry England was successful and they're both what I wanted to do. Or even like working with Psycho Festival now is like something where they hired me to do some stuff and they loved everything I did and just gave me complete freedom to do whatever I wanted and that became like a perfect freelance relationship that was actually lucrative but also fun and adds to my portfolio so are there other shows that you think are the shows that people really need to do um it it it's all over the place i was gonna do spx uh next week but i actually canceled my trip to save some money and where's that at that's in bethesda maryland it's kind of like the biggest of the indie conventions so um that's where they have the Ignatz Award and, and stuff like that. But like that's like Fantagraphics and all the big indie publishers are the kings of that, that show. I'm amazed it's not in Seattle. <laughs> there, well, there's one in Seattle. Emerald City Comic Con is pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also Short Run Festival, which is a smaller indie and zine festival in Seattle that's great. Um, I, I really, I've really enjoyed WonderCon the last couple of years in Anaheim. That one's been good. Mm-hmm. Uh Heroes Con in, in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina is an awesome show. It's like the best artist alley you can imagine. Just like everybody from like Nobody's Like Me up to like, you know, uh, you know, uh, oh, geez, I can't remember who I met. I met everybody there. Like, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's uh, and it's very it's a very non Hollywood convention, too. It's still like an old school comic book convention where people actually bring in a long box of comics they want you to sign. Which one's this? Which which heroes in, in Charlotte, North Carolina? Wow. It's in June every year, I think. But yeah, it's a great show. Wow. And um, 
and then I, it's it's and that's specific, of course, to, to comic book creators and, and illustrators. Yeah. So that's a good list. I mean, I think that anybody who's looking to uh, there's your there's your value for listening. Yeah. You know, that if you've if you've made it this late into the podcast, and we of course hope everybody listens to everything, that we'd like to give you a little bit of special info. And and this has been really great. And hey, man, it's been great having you back on. Yeah. Before we before we close this out, very quickly, everybody, you know, on your social media, uh, you want to add at Podsec, P-O-D-S-E-Q, which is the um, official Instagram, Twitter of Podsequentialism. We post quite a bit on Facebook, and we're starting to post um, links to previous shows, and I'm trying to, to get some of the artwork up on Instagram for previous shows as well with links. And if you go to at Gallery30South, which is at Gallery30South, you've got the Instagram, Twitter, and social media for Gallery 30 South in Pasadena, the gallery that I own with my wife, and where Tom's uh, Birds of Death show is on the walls right now. If you're a Nick Cave fan, this is kind of a must-see thing. If you are um, you know, fans of projects like Jodorowsky's Dune and um, you know the Island of Lost Souls documentary, that this is kind of a, uh, an art world version of that, where you've got this project that was supposed to happen that for reasons beyond the artist's control did not. And um, when you read into the story, that it goes deep into elements of, you know, um, you know, deception and 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 just unfortunate events, and something good can come out of it. And that at least in this instance, the portion that the artist produced can be seen unexpurgated, mm-hmm. and you can enjoy that in person. You can go to the site and look at the images as well. The pieces are for sale, so this is the first time that these pieces, the first and last time, because we've already sold pieces, that these pieces will be in um, one place at, in, at the same time. Yep. And we've also got, for the anniversary of the blot, blot pages on the walls, mm-hmm. we've got the incredible life-size statue of the blot character, yeah. <laughs> which um, is, is a shocking sight to see it's naked and has uh, this wire brush um, uh, pubic hair <laughs> that uh, is is very yeah. jarring to to say the least. It's been just hanging out in my living room for the last ten years. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that hasn't affected your dating life at all. But um, again, I want to thank Tom. Tom, what's your social stuff that you can you can spit out at people? Uh, I'm on Facebook, but barely. Mostly uh, Instagram. Uh, I will destroy Tom, and then my own website, I will destroy you. Com. Perfect. So, right. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Hello, this is Matt Kennedy from Pod Sequentialism. And um, what many, many of you may know that I, I do run a gallery in Los Angeles called La Luz de Jesus Gallery. And what you may not know is that it's inside Wacko, which is probably the greatest center of pop culture in the world. And it may sound like hyperbole, it's not. Um, you can, if you don't want to trust my judgment, you can listen to people like Kevin Smith, uh, James Gunn, uh, David Mack, um, all of whom will swear that uh, one of their favorite places on earth is uh, Wacko, the shop that houses La Luz de Jesus Gallery. Um, whether it's blind box toys or little tchotchkes or art books, it pretty much is the place that you can get all of your Christmas shopping done for every possible annoying person to buy for that you can imagine. They've got everything, and I highly recommend that you visit them. You can visit them online at soapplant.com. You can visit the gallery at laluzdejesus.com, and that's spelled L-A-L-U-Z-D-E-J-E-S-U-S.com. Check them out and tell them Matt Kennedy sent you.